The Spin-Off Podcast Network. Ah yes, that moment you realise you're walking among giants. Enjoy the perks of a university ranked in the top 300 in the world. Study online, on campus or both. Massey University. Success from a thousand little moments. To find out more, visit massey.ac.nz. Without foresight or vision, the people will be lost. Kia ora koutou, I'm Stacey Morrison. No mai, haere mai, welcome to Conversations That Count, ngā kōrero whaitake, a thought-provoking series brought to you by Massey University and the spin-off. No mai, haere mai, and welcome back to Conversations That Count, ngā kōrero whaitake. This is the first episode of our third season, and this time around we're kicking off with a kōrero all about literacy. Aotearoa's literacy rates have been in the news lately with growing concerns that our learners could be getting left behind. But what do the stats actually tell us? What do we need to do? And could updating our educational approach make a meaningful difference for those who are struggling right now? I'm your host, Stacey Morrison, tēnā katoa, and today I'm joined by three fantastic guests. From Massey University, we have Dr Christine Braid. Dr Braid is a kaitaka wainga in the University's Institute of Education, whose research focuses include curriculum and pedagogy. She also works directly with teachers and schools to explore best practice in literacy teaching and learning. Alongside Dr Braid, we're also welcoming Helena Baker and Josie Woon, who are co-principals of Te Kura Otakaro, a school in Palmerston North. Helena and Josie are experienced educators and will give us insight into the practical needs of today's learners, as well as shedding a little light on what they think the education sector needs. Nō reira e mihi ana ki a koutou katoa, tēnā koutou. Tēnā koe. Kia ora. Kia ora. Kia ora. Can I start with you, Dr. Brad? Where are we now? Because I know you've acknowledged that the data shows quite a concerning drop in our literacy rates over the last 20 years. But what does that mean in real terms? Sure. So in, in real terms, in the, in the classroom, I'll talk about that. But I mean, first, I'll just reiterate the recent reports from the Education Hub and the New Zealand Initiative, which both outlined the New Zealand um, data and overseas comparisons. And we do have dropping rates, and that's right up to date. Um, whereas some other countries, uh, if we wanted to compare, we have some other countries like Australia, Ireland and England have actually had um, improving rates. So that's one of the, that's what the data is telling us, if you like. But in real terms, in New Zealand, we've we've had things like 65% of students below their expected level in writing and 37% of students below their expected curriculum level in reading. So those are the sort of real terms that we've got. And this is also what I see when I'm out in schools and why schools get me to come in. And in real terms, we have students who cannot read simple words they've, they, which they have perhaps they haven't seen before, so they can't read them or they haven't read that book before, so they're not confident to read words out of that context. And we've got older students whose spelling and handwriting is holding them up from fluent writing. We've got year seven and eight and secondary students who've so many gaps in those first foundations that achieving at any higher curriculum level becomes very difficult. 
And this demotivates students, of course, demotivates depression about their learning. And then it also makes the job of the teacher so difficult because they're trying to advance children um, who haven't got that secure foundation. Helena and Josie, I guess if we bring it to the coal face or the, the face of the chalkboard, is this what you are seeing at school? Um, sadly, Stacey, I have to say yes. And we have seen these types of um, uh, statistics forever, mm. particularly for our Māori tamariki and, of course, Pacifica and for our school, our refugee tamariki as well. So uh, there has been a climate in our country of failure, and I cannot stress that enough, of uh, uh, of a certain group of our tam- of our tamariki at school, and it's usually Māori. And the sad thing is that once they start on that utter of failure, Whakaheke. yeah, mm. once they start on that, to get them off that is is close to impossible. So you see a uh, generations of failure, and that's the space that Josie and I have been working in. Yeah, and I'd like to say it's not just at your school, but no doubt you no, know the environment, no, right? No, uh, it's endemic across the whole country. Yeah, and it and and it's an absolute travesty and an injustice, and something must be done about it. So, this is where um, the motivation for change uh, for for both Josie and I, and for other kaiako and principals in other schools, there is a um, a real desire to do something different. So how has that happened, both to you and Josie, and again, not specifically to your school, but just what you're seeing in general, how has this happened? The problem has been in the fact that I think as teachers and principals, we have become disempowered to teach and to understand how to teach. We've been so concerned with things around assessment and collecting data and those sorts of things that we've actually lost sight of what our role is. That That's one of the, the contributors um, that I see. Uh, the, other, the other factor is that um, the type of way we were teaching is what we thought was best for mm. that time. But things have changed. We now can look inside the brain and see how it operates and works. And so we now know that there's a different way. But it seems like a few people have got that that research is out there and it's out there really clearly now, but we're always a little bit slow in education to pick up on it and to change from how we've been doing things and what's been set and what used to work 50 years ago and that kind of thing. So Josie will probably be able to pick up a little bit more about our frustration around how we do bring in that change and and what's needed to get that going and some support. You know, one of the reasons I'm here today is to make sure that I I cry out for the support that we need to change these statistics. So, Dr Braid, I mean, I think these two are a good example of passionate teachers who want to do their best. So what is standing in the way of better literacy? I mean, all the teachers I meet are are passionate and wanting to make a difference. Um, Some of them have been prepared to change a bit more. Some of us 
longer in the tooth. And I'm, I'm a classroom teacher. I, even though I haven't had my own classroom for a long time, I have never forgotten um, all of the joy and pain of, of that classroom and wanting to make a difference for children. I think um, it, is, it is, for me, it is about the children, uh, the teachers, and needing to understand the change that Helena and Josie have both talked about, that we actually need to teach in a different way we need to um, be given licence to collect data of data that matters, which is the foundation stuff. Not necessarily, We've spent a lot of time doing things like taking running records, which is working out whether a child can read a, a long text, but, we, but we've got children who can't read short words, so we've missed some of the data we have needed. Um, I think it is about teacher knowledge, that we, you know, I went through training and I didn't know a lot of this, the, the things I really need to know to teach well. And so it's not teacher's fault when, you know, there's no teacher blaming here. It's I'm cross at the training and the system that hasn't kept up and given teachers the technical knowledge that they need to teach really well. It's quite complex to teach literacy. It's more than just being able to read and write yourself you need to understand how those sounds in English get written down in different ways. English is a complex code. Um, we have to understand how sentences work, not just be able to write a sentence. We have to understand the bits of those sentences and how to teach it um, in that way. So I think um, teachers just get so excited when they, when they learn about this explicit teaching and learn about... Um, how how they can make more difference to to children um, with the same amount of effort because that's the thing we're all making a huge amount of effort to do the right thing for the children um, but if we've got the wrong process or we haven't got all the knowledge we need then it doesn't matter how hard we work we're going to be missing some of that point mm. I say we should be marching in the streets for this knowledge this is what we deserve yeah. And, and the important thing for us to understand too is it has felt like that the knowledge is only for some and the some uh, are the ones who proceed and can go through and get um, on to higher education or just be and do what they want to do in their, with their life. And then the, these others, the others, those who are, uh, uh, can't access this knowledge, just have no um, way to get through education in their life and that's the intergenerational stuff that I see that's happening the parents don't understand they can't support because they weren't doing well at school so this goes on and on and on and you get into this terrible spiral of causation because you couldn't get it right at the start for a little person around how language works the structure of it and what you can do to unlock it and and as a person who's failing, you feel that you're not worthy of that. And so that adds to your failure. And this is this is the whānau that um, Josie and I often work with in trying to convince them that they will be learners too, that, that it doesn't have to be how it was for them, is also part of part of our role as as teachers and educators. Is that what you were talking about as a climate? So it's a climate of acceptance that they almost don't expect some people that's right. and some tamariki to be able to pick this up. Yeah, yeah, that's right, because it, there's, because English is too hard or I never got and understood that. Um, so I I wasn't 
I wasn't interested in books or I didn't have someone who read to me. Um, so it, it becomes about that instead of this is just a, a, a structure that you can learn and access a code that you can access that you have the right to alongside anyone else. Kilda. And you have the capacity to do it. And and you have the capacity. Yeah. Well well, you know, the, the people who are easy to teach, it's it's you know, they know that. It becomes quite a self defining thing. I I'm good at school, you know, those kind of things. And whereas the people who don't have that experience, it's easy to fall into the sort of situations you're talking about. Josie, just finally in this piece how has best practice changed since you've been in education? Has it been enough or too much? Well, well education just goes in complete <laughs> loops and circles constantly and that's what's um, made me laugh a little bit about where we are now because, you know, that's how I started learning how to read and then moved to whole language. So it's really interesting listening to lots of um you know, online um, lectures and things at the moment, workshops, because it's all around practice that we used to do. So I feel like this is where we are again, but the difference is through structured literacy, we're trying to enable everyone to access access this, where before, you know, we paid for our PLD in our school to enable our staff to have this learning, and that's not accessible for everybody. And we've seen how much this has worked. So it's, yeah, education has completely changed. I, I used to be in charge of the reading recovery teacher and I thought that was the be all and end all <laughs> until I learnt a lot as well. So it's yeah, it's, it's purely about teacher knowledge and being and being accessible where that hasn't always been the case in education. We get the manual sent out to us and we were expected to run lots of our own PLD around those giant books with the knowledge that we had. So I feel like this is uh, we're moving in a way where New Zealand educators are working together. Mm. rather than in our siloed schools, which is really exciting. It is exciting, but a little bit scary that until now yes. there was going to be a really patchy performance when that is the way that we're approaching it. So if I can go back to you, Christine, if we look at structured literacy, what does that offer and how can you describe structured literacy as opposed to what we did before, which was called a whole language approach? Um, so I was trained, obviously, in a whole language approach and have trained teachers in that as well until a few years ago, maybe 10. Uh, that was the way I thought was the best way to teach children to read. It's very enamoring. It's very seductive to think that children will learn to read by reading and, get, and learn to write by writing. Um, a structured approach makes sure that we teach systematically and explicitly all the items or all the steps that the children will need for success. Whereas when we don't have that structured systematic um, progression, some children will pick it up and, and they do. They, they work out, their brain seems to work it out themselves. Whereas others who needed to be shown and told more and have it explained more carefully, um, they, they've been the ones that we haven't been able to help. So now with the structured approach, I feel we can help everyone. My point about the teacher knowledge was that there's a lot of knowledge you need to be able to teach this way well. And, and so there's a bit of um, backpedaling, I suppose, or, or gap filling for teachers as well, for teacher knowledge as well. So do we blame the current bad data on the whole language approach? Is, is this how we got here? Well, I think what we're seeing is, and Josie can speak to this as well, and Helena, 
um, that what, what schools who are taking on the structured approach are finding is that it's just making such a huge difference to those, particularly those children who, um, who, who weren't putting it together and, and through implicit teaching. And so they get this explicit teaching. It's not a magic bullet, but it is making a massive difference. So in, um, and, and we, our research, the Massey research that we did um, a few years back that can be found on Education Counts, that early literacy project, uh, definitely that's what we found, that we had a control group that carried on business as usual, so whole language or balanced literacy. And then we had a, our, our intervention group who used a structured approach or a, were being more systematic and explicit and had the resources for that. And the data showed that those children in our intervention group with the teachers who were doing that approach made huge grounds. And we, the biggest surprise or, and the most heartening thing was that it was the children who normally in the, in the lower decile, um, middle decile schools um, excelled or got to just at least nearly as high as, as the other schools. So I think, yes, the data is starting to show that it is about a structured approach that will make a difference. Can I just ask, uh, sorry to be like maybe a little bit too basic, but just if, if I understand that when we're looking before more at whole language approach, like you say, that's reading, remember what that word looks like, and writing, write down that word. And a structured literacy approach, what sort of things will you point out to kids or ask them to engage with? So it's being very clear about how the sounds maps onto the letters um, starting with very basic level where everything's predictable and dependable. So those are called consonant vowel consonant words. The vowel sound is always short. Uh, English vowel sound, I'm talking about teaching English here. Um, and then moving through and finding um, what happens when the vowel sounds long and how will I spell that. And so it's phonics, if you like, but mm. being very clear about how the alphabetic principle, understanding how the sound and the letters work together. So those funny little squiggles that some children pick up really easily and others need a lot of a lot of time. So I guess we would have understood that as being phonics. We talk about it as the printed code and making sure children master that printed code so that they can um, have the access to, to the print on the page. Kilda, thank you. That does help a lot. Yeah. Uh, and I, I, one thing I know about Te Reo Māori is it's called quite a reliable language in terms mm. of what you, how would you describe what a reliable language means, Helena? Um, that means that the sounds that you uh, hear are always, um, always the same sound. Written the same way. Yeah, yeah. written the same way, sound the same in, in any word. So that, that, that's what I would say is reliable. English is unreliable. Uh, yeah, but what, <laughs> Parts of it are, and that's yeah. the that's the point I think that Chris is making. Parts of the English language um, are unreliable, but on the whole, there is a structure, and what you need to learn to read and write with is that predictable structure. And so, what we've used as an excuse in the past not to do this is as we've put in all those those anomalies and difficulties and then and said that it's too hard. And I think that's about us thinking that English is is better than anything else in the world. Mm. It's not. It's still a language. So, um, yeah, that 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 we we can access and should be able to because we speak it. So, um, I'm not sure, Stacey, if you know that that. Uh, work has been done in Te Reo Māori 
in the mm. same sort of way. We've we've got a beautiful person in our area who has um, worked alongside uh, Liz Kane to develop some, this resource in Te Reo Māori, and that's exciting too because when you speak to uh, Māori uh, kaiako and pauako, they talk about the kids actually in uh, in in Māori settings being good speakers of Te Reo Māori, but when they've got to do their NCEA type thing and write some stuff down, they're falling behind. And so this is this is um, an issue that's with Te Reo Māori as well. And so we're not seeing kids accessing um, qualifications at a higher level in Te Reo Māori because they haven't got the writing capability. Yeah, and I would say as well, I've seen the jump in NCA. It goes quite quickly. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, in level one, you're just showing that you've acquired some language. In level two and level three, you're, you're supposed to be making big essays. Yeah, So I'd yeah. say it's quite a jump. Yeah, and so people who are, 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 are have good language um, acquisition immediately cut off at the foot because they haven't got that side sorted and um, haven't been able to get that through their schooling. So... But what a lot of you of what you're saying today is it's about the coding, it's about unlocking knowledge. And perhaps we haven't done that in the best ways uh, for our tamariki. So Josie, in particular, if we stick, say, with bilingual and multilingual children, what are some of the different challenges that they face in unlocking that code of language, of English language especially? So we probably had um, an huge increase of uh, refugee students in the last three years. And when um, we first started getting students, especially in the junior side of the school, our teachers were really stuck because you can't put a book in front of them with context that they don't know about and then expect them to read in the whole language approach. So when we started working with structured literacy, all our students could then begin to look at sounds and letters and phonological awareness right from day one. And it didn't have to be wrapped up in a context that they were unfamiliar with. It was actually just a really, really clear, simple activity. And so teachers were just ecstatic that everybody in their class was now able to access teaching time with them and with the teacher aides and in workshops and groups and activities, all doing the same things. We didn't have to differentiate off learning for these children who come in with a, with another language. So already they're super skilled at language in any way and um, then being able to access English on top of mm-hmm. that. So that's what we have found, that for our um, second language learners, it has been phenomenal. From year one to year eight, it doesn't matter when they come in, they are all able to access reading and writing. So is this more accessible, Christine, as an approach? Uh, I would, yeah, definitely. It gives, every, like Josie's just said so beautifully, it gives everybody the access because if I know an alphabet, if that's the, if it's for, if that alphabet's used to write an English word or te reo or Samoan or Tongan word, for those languages that use an alphabet, we've established the neural pathway, if you like, in the brain that um, enables me to read that in English, you pointed out that English is trickier. It might take two to three years to lay down all the patterns we need for English, whereas a, m- a more transparent um, alphabet, which Tadeo is because you've got that um, reliability that you talked about. But but I'm, I've still got the pathways there to know that when I see that funny squiggle that's an M, I go, mmm. So the pathways are the same. So for that multilingual idea, we can build the same sort of foundations and um, 
and, and improve reading in English, but also ensure that children keep their um, first language. Mm. So there are ways of unlocking all this knowledge. And the sad thing is, is that if we don't unlock it, there's a lot of waste of potential, isn't yes, there? Yes, yeah. I can't stress that enough. I mean, that, that's, that's the injustice of all of this. What a waste for us as a country, mm. for us as a people. And the amount of children with needs as well, so um, undiagnosed dyslexics that are across across every classroom in New Zealand. You've got children on the spectrum. You know, on the spectrum, you've got children with ADD and ADHD. All of those children have difficulties in their brain accessing things, especially whole language. But when you break this down, and they're seeing it numerous times a day, every day of the week, it also then helps them to access the curriculum where before they would have struggled in a group situation. Mm. So, yeah, I think it just covers everybody. This is this is one approach that I think doesn't differentiate. Everyone is the same, and that's what I think has been just mind-blowing for me as an educator when I first learned about it, but also being able to share that with other teachers who then all of a sudden have the same moment of, wow, everyone in my class can do this and sit with me mm. and access the curriculum. So it is about dropping some ideas that we had before, even perhaps the ideas that were drilled into us at school. When you talk about learning differences like that, Josie, I think some people might think, well, they didn't, they weren't around when I was a kid, or is it that we just couldn't recognise it then? So perhaps just as many people who are adults now had ADHD, but it just wasn't recognised, mm. or is there just more kids who have it now? I think it's more. Rec- more I think it's more recognised yeah. now. Yeah, and and educators also have more of an understanding about what to look for. Even with dyslexia, there's that misconception that oh, you write backwards and upside down, you're dyslexic. And when you learn about dyslexia that's not the indication that you're dyslexic. And educators don't have that knowledge. You know, we have to go out and pay for that or go out and find courses around that, which shouldn't be part of our, that should be part of our core training because these are children who are in our class every day. So I always think these things have been there and children are probably adults now thinking, I now know that I've got that. I wish it was picked up when I was a child, but I just think we've got more knowledge. Yeah, it's not so hit and miss. And it's not so taboo. Yeah, 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 that's right. Um, the other thing too is there was a under the whole language and, and with the support that was in schools was around reading recovery. But and there's nothing wrong with reading recovery. I'm not here to bag that because that has had some success because they do use structured literacy as part of that. But um, what what I am unhappy about is that it was only for a few. You could only access reading recovery for three or four kids in your school mm. when you had the needs of 50 children who could have been um, on an individualised supportive remedial type programme. So this, 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 and, and the other aspect of reading recovery was unless you got it um, by a certain age, you had to be six, Chris, you'd be able to say the exact age, yeah. you had to be a six-year-old. If you uh, still hadn't learned to read by then, um, it, then that was your chance. Oh, that's not even very old. They've only been at school for a year, maybe. Well, this was it. And so so one of the things that often happened then was we were labelling labeling kids as being um, failures from six, uh, which is which is just wrong. So and we and we know now that the brain can continue to lay down pathways and grow 
all through your life. So you can get in and teach this to kids that need it, who who may have come to us from another school, for example. Um, we can we can grab them at any age and start them on this pathway to get them going. How much is resourcing an issue? Because you mentioned how uh, the Ooh. funding worked for reading recovery. You're all laughing in an ironic way. Yeah. <laughs> Huge, huge! You get we get nothing for this. Schools have to pay for this out of their own money. Yeah, for the particular structured yeah literacy for the support. Yeah, for yeah. the training, for the books, for the resourcing alongside it. So that's that's quite that's a massive amount of money. Um, you know, I'm talking thousands and thousands here to resource it, and uh, you know, I've only been able to do that gradually, year by year, build up our resources. So. So I know that I always know that I don't have really don't have enough books. We can't send our books home because we don't have enough. Because if that book's not back in the school, then someone else is going to miss out. Uh, it's that type of stuff. So so what 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 has happened in the past is the government has provided a set of readers for schools, and all schools got those readers. The Ready to Read series was part of that, and you could supplement that series with other books that you buy. But this um, this is completely up to the school now to resource this. And, um, yeah, and, and that's not easy. So, so, you know, we jokingly say, you know, I don't have really great basketball hoops in my school because I've actually used that money to buy books. And I feel cross about that too because I've got some great <laughs> basketball players who would benefit from some new hoops. Hey, Josie. So, yeah. <laughs> So it's that challenge and it won't yeah. be equitable because not everybody no. has the same ability to access the resources. So what do you want to say to the government or otherwise or or how whoever who could help this situation? What is your, your plea and, and what you could see as a real solution that could help our rates in terms of literacy? I know that the ministry is um, really intent on making this difference. They've put out the literacy and new uh, math strategy just recently. It's a it's a broad document, but it's um, signalling that they realise there's an issue here. Um, they've also um, created some decodable text, which is the text um, Helene is talking about, and are in, in, in intending to increase that um, offering to schools so that schools are getting those texts. So I think what's happening is that there's many schools ready, like um, Takoro has been for many years, and the assistance hasn't been there. Um, and now the ministry is um, an, uh, intent on catching up, but of course it takes it takes time for change to happen. And um, the same the same is true of training. There's a Better Start Literacy training. There's other training that the ministry is doing. So I think it would be fair to say that um, their intent is there um, with all the strategy that's there, and the resourcing is is coming, if not already there. And um, so I, I think there's hope in that. I think that's a really optimistic thing for us to hope that that although the change may not be happening as fast as we'd like it to, it is honestly, yeah, really changing. Uh, just on that, with working with that uh, lifting literacy Aotearoa, the biggest worry for us is around the literacy strategy that mentioned nothing, not one word around structured literacy, and none of the research papers at the end of it also mentioned anything around the science of reading. So as an educator who's passionate about structured literacy, that was the first thing I went to. 
And as the big push, my question back to them is, where is structured literacy going to be in this new initiative? And when you think about um, books that schools get, I'm thinking, well, you know, we work because I'm in our local um, Te Orokaraka Kahuiako, and I work with a lot of little country schools who don't have any money for this PLD or resourcing. You know, and, they, and we get ready to read books, which I don't need any of my junior teachers read with their children because structurally they haven't been done very well. So we're still, you know, even the, and, and sadly the decodable books that came out by the ministry, again, ha- have missed the mark a little bit. So it's, it's kind of, you know, they're trying and spending lots and lots of money on trying, but it's like they're not quite getting there yet yeah and I'm not sure if they're really open Chris to the the wider research that's out there probably I'm a bit more pessimistic than you in (laughs) terms of what the ministry can do for schools because you know this is this is 30 years for me now of seeing just unprecedented stupidness in in lots of ways and when they want to get something in quickly they'll do it Mm. you know I just I just remember the speed of national standards coming in and the changes that 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 you know that was within a year so i think i think it's about commitment for me and the people there widening their field of of view to some of the information that's out there and really listening to schools and 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 what's happening because people do listen you know that I know a lot of those people. New Zealand's a small place, and you've you've been to school with them. The the people who going to conferences together. Conferences together. They know who Helena is. I've been around for a while, and they all empathize. You know, uh, uh, empathetic with me, and 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 understand how um, how you know the injustice. But I don't see the speed of of picking up like I have to in the school. The reason we went to structured literacy is because we couldn't bear another day with our kids um, not being able to um, read and our teachers not really knowing what to do. It was just, it was just, it just had to stop. So that's that's why we committed to doing this in the way we have and used the money in the way we did. Josie, as a parent, if a parent's listening to this and they know their child is struggling with literacy and their school is not offering what you all advocate and whatever they are offering is not working for their child, what can they do? Come in, t- talk to schools. Parents need to come in and also help with pushing the message because um, I'm on numerous Facebook pages around structured literacy and lots of parents have jumped on board and the messages are exactly what you're saying. Our child isn't achieving we've seen all the stuff on structured literacy, we're giving it a go at home, how do I get my school on board? And I think it's that many voices get heard. So I think once parents come in and start talking about how they're educating themselves, it would definitely help schools think about it. Because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. And as we start talking, schools start to say, hey, what's happening over there? Mm. Maybe I will go and have a look. You know, maybe I'll go and check it out for myself and see what all the structured literacy is about. And then that's when we get them going, oh, actually, this is quite cool. Tell me more. Mm. So, you know, it's teachers supporting teachers in that way. But parents, absolutely, advocate for your children, 100%. I wish my older children had learned to read this way. Luckily, my youngest son is able to. And, Christine... I mean, we all have aroha for the fact that teachers have had to work through unprecedented times in the pandemic. 
is this just all a bit too tiring? Should we have just expected this um, when we're going to have such disruption over two years? Well, I think the change that we're talking about here is, is, is aside from COVID, this needs to happen anyway. Mm. And I mean, I absolutely feel the desperation of teachers when these reports come out and you feel so battered by them. And I definitely don't want to be part of, of, of that battering of teachers. But there's part of this whole idea that we've worked as hard as we could, but actually we, we needed to unstitch what I call unstitching my teaching DNA all the way I was taught. I need to actually relook at and and um, have a look. And so there's no shame in what we've done unless we don't change now. And I agree with Helena that there, even though there is change, there's also urgency. The children can't wait for us to debate our long-held beliefs. We've got to be brave and relearn for the sake of our students. I feel I feel sorry that families have to fight this way. For, the, for you know, a lot of those families won't have the energy or, or the capacity mm. in some way to go and fight. So I'm asking schools to stand up. I know the ministry wants to support too. So well, I'm hopeful in that. But I think it's 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 teachers and schools being prepared to say, okay, we thought we knew, but take it from me, who I worked for thirty years not knowing this stuff, and once you know, you can't unknow, and it's just it's just you need to just not, just, yeah, just just to um, be prepared to to really think. Look, I was working with a teacher yesterday. She's on the verge of retirement, and she was on the verge of tears for all the students she hadn't been able to serve. I feel for her too mm. because she didn't have those methods, and she's absolutely embraced this new way and can't believe that she didn't know. So it's it's as teachers being prepared to give away what we thought we knew um, and be prepared like me to say, well, I thought I did know. I thought I was an expert in literacy, but actually I needed to look at some other things. So that's how I see it. So we have seen that things haven't been great, so now's the time to have a chance to actually bring a new strategy to make sure we advocate, to make sure we put our energies and our resources in the right places. This is what I'm hearing from you. Because you are in our schools right now, Josie and Helena, is there anything you'd like to add and a plea you'd like to put out there? Listen to the um, listen to the people who know what they're talking about. So when the ministry get advice on the decodable books, listen. <laughs> it's pretty easy. Listen and do it. They... Um, one of the things that came out was um, decodable books with Māori names in. And I have no issue with the Māori language, but we would never put an English word into a Māori reader. And so when you're looking at two different vowel structures in one book, it's really confusing for children who are trying to just learn one. So the feedback that they got given was, yes, we understand that you're trying to be culturally responsive, but in this particular form... It's not going to work. If anything, you're going to disadvantage our Māori students who are going to then become confused about sounds of letters. But they didn't use that advice and they still did it. So it looks better. Uh, So as (laughs) a mother of three bilingual children, I'm comfortable with the pedagogy that says, uh, you know, our tamariki are Māori first and then at year four they brought in formal English literacy and as bilingual learners that worked for them. But that's because of their situation, the resources and the support we were able to give them at home. But that shouldn't be the reason why they succeed or don't succeed or that some people just give up on them. Yeah. So I know and I can hear your passion, Helena. What do you want to say to our education system? This is our time. This is the time to make the change. We don't have to continue being part of a system 
where we are failing our tamariki. We can we can make a difference, and I absolutely know that. I see that with uh, uh, what's happened in my in in, in our kura. Um, I was so pleased that Josie fought with me to to bring in structured literacy because my my bent my whole life had been at the whole language approach, and I argued for that with her. But when when I saw what we could do. Um, to change that view and that way forward, um, I now know that there is a way forward. You can make a difference. Um, let's do it. Let's get on and do it. And then you can be part of a system that didn't fail Māori. And I hope to God that that's what's going to be for me because I'm starting to get to the other end of it now. <laughs> So this is our time to strike. You've been really open and honest about the reality, the issues, the opportunities, and actually what we have to take hope from and what we have to work with. So thank you all. Tēnā rā koutou katoa. And thank you also for listening. Make sure you leave a review. Tēnei ka mihi, kia koutou katoa. You've been listening to Conversations That Count. Ngā kōrero whaitake. Brought to you by the Spin-Off Podcast Network in partnership with Massey University. It was hosted by Stacey Morrison. It was produced by T.I. Butler, with content management by Rachel LaRue and series production by Jane Yee. Special thanks to our partnership's editorial team of Matthew McCauley and Elisa Rivera. Study online, on campus or both with Massey University. To find out more, visit massey.ac.nz. The Spin-Off Podcast Network.